It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Steve Schiffman, president and CEO of Michaelman, a large, privately held global technology and manufacturing company. Headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio, and employing approximately 500 associates, Michaelman has sales and administrative offices, technology centers, and manufacturing operations in the U.S., Belgium, Luxembourg, Singapore, China, India, and Japan. Steve has had a diverse career both before and at Michaelman. His experiences range from sales and sales management to finance, where he served as the company's CFO, to leadership of one of the company's business units, ultimately culminating in his appointment as the CEO in 2003. Steve and his wife, Julie, reside in Cincinnati, Ohio, and have four adult sons. Along with his business and community commitments, Steve is an avid cyclist, skier, hiker, and runner. Steve Schiffman, welcome into the corner office. Thank you for having me. Now, great to have you here today. And uh, we are going into, I, I can't remember, is it month four or month five of the pandemic? All the months seem to be uh, rolling together here now, but I know you're based in Cincinnati, but uh, up at your home in Colorado. Let's just kind of kick it off and, you know, tell me how you're holding up. How are things going at home? How is your team doing at Michaelman? Well, thank you for asking. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, things are going well. Um, they're going well and um during our leadership development sessions at Michaelman, we teach improvisation. And one of the mm. most important improv skills is the yes and skill. <laughs> and and so I would say that things are going very well for us. And of course, it's impossible not to have been impacted by this epidemic and by this yeah. pandemic. And so we are fortunate in our organization that our manufacturing operations globally have stayed open. And we've mm. been really lucky, knock on wood, to have no outbreaks. Our laboratories have been about 50-50, although we're working quickly to get our scientists back in full-time because, as right. you know, scientists want to do science and, and they can't do science from home. Sure. Right. And then our, our professional staff, our white-collar staff, is by and large working remotely today because, fortunately, we can. We've invested well in information technology and right. Right. people are able to continue to do their jobs on a personal level. You know, um, fine. I'm I'm very lucky. We're lucky to live in a beautiful home, and I mm. enjoy being quarantined with my wife. And we've had a chance, really, as a sort of a silver lining, to have more time than we normally get yeah. with our adult children and yeah. our first grandchild this this summer. Oh, and so, you know, it's um it's very difficult, and it's tough for everybody. And as I said, everybody's been impacted. But I would say that we're holding in and um and and just you know doing our very best to manage through this set of weird times. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, well, we'll talk a little bit about Michaelman later, but are you considered an essential industry? 
Uh, well, we consider ourselves to be essential, <laughs> but, but yes, we were we were essential. I shouldn't be so glib. So, yeah. so Michaelman serves a number of industries, and a couple of the industries that we serve are absolutely essential. We do an awful lot of work in the packaging business, and so right, right. You know, um, we've been all receiving lots of takeout food and lots of um, mm-hmm. shipped packages yeah. and things yeah. like that. And so Michaelman's been very involved globally in, in a lot of work to do with packaging and and many of, of the other uh, downstream markets that we serve are also essential. So our main manufacturing plants were really in high demand and stayed open throughout the entire pandemic. That's awesome. Great. Terrific. Well, let's start about you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your early years, Uh, Stephen. Where'd you grow up and what your early family life was like? I grew up in Springfield, Ohio. All right. Uh, And and people always wonder if it was a Springfield that The Simpsons was based on. I think 48 (laughs) of the 50 states have a Springfield, but Springfield was- I think so too. (laughs) It was a wonderful sort of middle America place to be raised. Mm -hmm. Mother, Mm -hmm. father, brother, sister, you know, the the sort of um, uh, stereotypical family. Family. Right. Um, it was it was you know great times. It was it was just two um, of you. Do you have just one sibling, or I have a brother and family? a sister. So mm-hmm. Got it. yeah, Got there it. were three of us. And I spent a lot of time as a kid doing usual kid stuff in the Midwest. Lots of baseball and yep. football yep. and stuff. You know, those are the days when you played outside. That's right. Yeah. Leave in the morning, come home for dinner. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What about mom and dad? What What were their professions? Uh, my dad is uh, was was we recently lost him. My dad was a CPA, and he mm-hmm. uh, built and ran a a really nice um, small. Uh, accounting practice. It was small. It was in a couple of cities around where we lived, and they did wonderful work for lots of small and mid-sized businesses and professionals. Later on, he went on to run a hospital, and he mm. and my mom opened an ice cream shop, and that's a wow. longer story. My mom was a pretty much stay-at-home mom. She did some work in my dad's office, but she did an awful lot of community work and volunteer yes. work. And both of my parents did a ton of community work, and that certainly got drummed into me at an early age. And that's become right. a very important part of what I and what we do now at this stage yeah. in our life. But yeah, so my, my parents were in the small town involved in everything from our synagogue to the arts organization. Mm. My dad coached my baseball team and was involved with the JCs and all that kind of stuff. Nice. Siblings, uh, middle, youngest, oldest? Where do I'm you the know? oldest. You're the oldest. I'm the, okay. I'm the oldest. Okay. And you trained I've your got, parents. <laughs> yeah, I'm the oldest sibling and I've got a younger sister who, who now lives in Phoenix and um, a younger brother who is, is actually in the Columbus, Ohio area. Not too far away. What were some of the early lessons, you know, if you, if you take away from some of those, maybe the elementary years when you think about mom and dad and the kinds of, you know, work behavior that you observed, anything that you take away from those periods? You know, I, I think... A, a lot of what was really important in my upbringing, Brant, was stuff that we sort of took for granted back in those mm, days. You sure. know, I was very, very fortunate to have two parents in my home who loved me and who valued education. I had a brother and a sister who, um, you know, were, were healthy and we had lots of sports and scouts and just mm. the sort of Norman Rockwell kind of stuff. And it was it was really a, a wonderful opportunity in retrospect to be raised in a place where education mattered and family love mattered and being involved in community mattered. And, and and, and so, you know, at, at the time, it just seemed like normal. But, yeah, you know, unfortunately, yeah. we look around and it's no longer necessarily the norm. But yeah. um, very fond memories looking back to those days. Any other early influencers or, or perhaps, you know, coaches or teachers that inspired you? Rabbis, perhaps. Yeah, coaches, of course. I mean, I played a lot of sports as a kid. Uh, I was, was, Springfield was really interesting. Springfield, Ohio had this fabulous youth tennis program. And I mm. I was sort of raised in that youth tennis program and ultimately was one of the counselors and one of the coaches. Did a ton of theater through high school. And oh, really? The, ah. the theater director there was somebody who, you know, we all spent a lot of time with and looked up to. So, yeah. 
you know, it was one of those things where, where the town kind of took care of you back in the day. Right. So, right. you know, the, the mentors, there were of course some teachers and coaches, et cetera, but you know, you were just sort of part of this community. Well, you know, drama is a very important part. I was involved as well. And it's amazing how many CEOs have had that type of experience, that or debate. And it really does develop your communication skills. I think communication skills, but being comfortable in, in all right. situations, being comfortable on a stage and me being comfortable meeting new people. You know, I, I went on to be a waiter all through college and I, I learned, I think, most of my great sales skills as a, as a waiter. <laughs> Absolutely. And so between drama and waiting tables and then, you know, teaching tennis or teaching skiing, you pick up all these skills that then carry over to later trying to hurt a bunch of adults and run a business. Yeah. Awesome. Were you a good student in school? Uh, I, I was a good student in school, but also I think it was one of those things where I was good enough students to not work very hard and get 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 good Bs, right? right. And right. it wasn't until I went off to college and learned what the bigger world looked like that I had to learn how to be a better student. And ultimately, I didn't become a really good student until graduate school. So every step of the way, I had to pick up step it new up. academic skills. Yeah. It, you yeah. know, it was it was easy enough to kind of skate by in the early days, but right. it, it wasn't quite so easy later on in grad school. Any entrepreneurial things you were involved with in your younger years, elementary, secondary school area? Uh, I had a paper route like yep. a lot of guys did back in those yep, days. Sure, and, sure. you know, that that was, I think, the, the bulk of my entrepreneurship. And then and those are the days when you had to go door to door and collect the, the, the well, you know, I mean, subscription, you, you, right? you, you say that, but th that was a big deal, right? Oh, yeah. If you, didn't, if you didn't go collect the cash, you didn't get paid. That's and, right. Um, That's right. So you, you had to learn to go you got out your and, papers paid out of that, right? right? Yeah, so yeah. To go shake down Mrs. Mrs. Green around the corner who wasn't paying her for her paper. I love it. I love it. And uh, what were some of the earliest jobs you had? You mentioned, uh, obviously, waiting tables and other things. Were there things that you did during high school? Were you, you know, meant to kind of set aside funds that would help fund your college years? Um, well, I was very, 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 very lucky that my parents paid for college. But if I wanted to have money to do things like um, party and travel and stuff like that, that was on me. And so right, right. Um, when I was in high school before college, you know, I mentioned my dad was a CPA and he had a beer distribution company as one of his clients. And I got a job in the warehouse and on a beer delivery truck. And one of the most important lessons for me was I didn't want to do that for a living. But <laughs> That's right. it, That's, those are good lessons to have early Great on. lessons. But, you know, <laughs> you also learned, you learned the best value of, of really hard work. And these were guys who were doing this for a living. This was going to be their life. And I had the option as a, as a kid, as a brat, to kind of come in and do it for a couple of months in the summer. And then I could go back to college in Boulder, Colorado. I did that. I worked installing swimming pools. But I, I always enjoyed things like waiting tables. It was just a lot more fun to be mm -hmm. engaging with, with the public and sort of putting on a show. Right. Right. Now, was it a foregone conclusion you'd go to college? Was that something that mom and dad? Yeah. 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 I, I was from that era where, of course, it wasn't even an option. I was, I was going to college. Um, my, my parents were both first generation. My, my dad was first generation college in his family. My mom was first generation college, but I think she lasted like a semester. Right. But it was really never even a question that yeah. I was going yeah. off to college. And your younger siblings went on as well, I presume. They did. Yeah. yeah. Well, we uh, we both graduated from college about the same age, so or at the same time. So we're probably about the same age. University of Colorado Boulder's Beautiful. I remember that was one of my target campuses. What made you decide to go there? I'd like to say that it was a long drawn out process. You know, <laughs> I, have, I have four adult kids and the process we went through to help to select oh, colleges yeah. and apply to colleges so was like a major yeah. branding effort. Back, That's right. Back in the day when I was doing it, I, I thought I was going to Northwestern University because I love drama. Oh, and yeah. we had some family friends that had moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado. When we went my senior year, we went to visit them during... Christmas break and we went skiing for a couple of days. Mm. I came home, I 
I wrote a letter to the University of Colorado and I asked for an application. I applied, I was accepted, and that was the process. That was it. That, that was, was it. 100% it, right? I'd like yeah, to say that it was really, four years. Yeah. I stayed, yeah, no, I yeah. actually, I, I crammed four years into four and a half years or five years, I think, because right. why right. hurry your way through Boulder, Colorado? Exactly. Now, studying business, was that kind of a foregone conclusion as well, or did you explore a couple of different areas? It was. Well, mm-hmm. first I started as a theater major and I lasted all of six months. I, I, I like to joke that I realized <laughs> I was Springfield, Ohio talented. Right, um, right. <laughs> you know, I was a big deal in Springfield, Ohio theater. Yeah, but when I yeah. left the university, I realized a couple of things. First of all, I didn't want to study serious drama. And and really, I think I don't ultimately I wasn't that talented. And right. so then I went into business. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I think I would have done something else. I I, I, I like having that business background. But, right. you know, I my, my kids, for the most part, uh, enjoyed a liberal arts education. And I, I took my fair share of liberal arts sure. classes. But I don't know that I was as interested in that stuff then as I am now. And so I, I say I would have done it differently, but I don't think I would have. I, yeah, I say yeah. the 62-year-old the version of myself wishes I would have done much more in the liberal arts, but the <laughs> 18 to 22-year-old of myself was concerned about what I was going to do for a living after college. And so therefore it was business. I remember a couple of adult mentors told me when I went to school, and I went to the University of Oregon, uh, also away from home, and uh, you know, take a couple of courses outside of business. You know, I know you want to go into business, but go and do that. And I have to remember, I have to, to admit that the courses I took in astronomy and geology are probably things I retain more over the years than <laughs> some of the things I've learned in accounting or business law. Yeah, it's amazing how that works sometimes. What was that first job that you took out of college, Steve? Well, when I graduated college, I had planned with a fraternity brother of mine to uh, take a year and go ski in Europe. And so that's what we did. And so we ended up in Kitzbühel, Austria. And my great buddy and and roommate and fraternity brother is about 6'4", 240. And I am not. uh, I am a much smaller version of that. So we ended up at this (laughs) great bar in Kitzbühel, Austria, where I was a bartender and he was the bouncer. We actually both thought we were going over to teach skiing in Kitzbühel because we had taught together at uh, the Aspen Highlands. And, And you have to remember these were pre-internet days sure. and so the communications that i was having with this ski school in kitbiel austria was all by letter Letters, and for some yeah. reason they right. presumed that we both spoke german and uh, when we got there of course neither of us spoke german and so that job we thought we had we didn't have and so we had to scramble and it ended up being fabulous because as mm. i said I, t- I attended bar and he was a bouncer and we both taught some underground skiing during the day which was really lots of fun but then when we came back to the united states uh, a good buddy of mine had gotten a job in in television advertising sales. And I thought that sounded like fun. So I ended up doing radio sales, radio ad sales. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, you definitely have a voice for radio. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, did you get some early leadership lessons from any of those jobs, bartending including? (laughs) No, I I got really early perseverance experience because the, the training that I got as a radio ad salesman for uh, KBRQ. Now I've got to tell you that KBRQ, the radio ranch, uh, it was a, a, um, a country radio station. As a jazz fan, I got a job at a station called KADX in Denver, Colorado, which was oh one gosh. of the last couple of commercial jazz stations in the country. And I was so excited when I got the job. I showed up for work on Monday and they had changed format to country because they were purchased by somebody <laughs> over the weekend. So I went from thinking I was going to be this cool jazz sales guy <laughs> to selling country radio. And oh, the training goodness. was, here's your rate card. Um, 
Here's your phone list. <laughs> here's, and, well, not even. Here's not your even. rate card. Go here's out and yellow, sell something. pages. Yeah. And so it, it was the classic, um, you know, that you've heard the joke a hundred times. I made 50 calls the first day. And if two people hadn't asked me what I was selling, I would have made 55 calls. Right? Yeah, exactly. So it was a lot of cold calling and knocking on doors. Yeah, and yeah. so um, I, learned, I learned a ton about perseverance, but mm-hmm. I also learned a lot about how not on board new associates, right? It was, <laughs> but, but, you know, I was, I was 22 and I knew nothing and it was, it was lots of fun. And, and, um, my buddy who had sold for television, it was a little bit more glamorous. And, and one of the things he, he sold me on was that they got these great expense accounts, right? You could go entertain mm. people. And so we didn't really have expense accounts. We had trade relationships. And so I would take people clear across town to the barbecue restaurant because who else was advertising on country radio <laughs> back then? So it wasn't nearly as glamorous as I had right. hoped, but it was right. great training. And, and, um, it, it, it really, um, I think it, it gave me a real taste for entrepreneurship and for what it took to go out and develop sure. business. Sure. How long did you stay in the advertising sales business? Well, I stayed there for about a year, but then right. I'd always had a desire to live in New York City. And mm. so um, on a on a lark, not really a lark, I mean, I planned it, but I had nothing really um, to go to. I packed up and moved to New York and I used the experience I had in Denver selling to get a job selling radio advertising in New York City. Oh, and, yeah. and that was that was really exciting to yeah. go from, you know, I'm a small town kid. I went to school sure. in Boulder, Colorado, lived in Denver for a while, and then moved to New York. And I was selling radio advertising for a couple of years with one of the largest stations in the city and then ended up with a company that represented stations all over the country. Yeah, wow. And it was really good fun. But again, I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do for a living. And and so I did that, I think, all together for three or four years, radio mm-hmm. advertising. Do you remember the first time you started managing people? The first time I started managing people was when my wife and I moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm. Um, we had she was pregnant with our first child. We moved back to Cincinnati, where she is from, mm-hmm. and um, I had had this desire to be an entrepreneur, and I started a business, and so I immediately had to begin managing people. Mm. So I had been, you know, I'd been sort of a, a lone wolf sales guy, and I'd been a ski instructor and waiter and all that kind of right, stuff. But right. then managing people happened when I started my own business. How uh, how hard was that for you? It was hard in that I managed based upon, um, well, I treated people like I kind of want to be treated myself, which, which, you know, fast forward to today, it's really been beneficial, but it's been beneficial because I've learned how I think to surround myself with people who have great skills, great talent, great passion, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And that was a lesson I had to learn. So um, it, it was it was fun and it was challenging and, and to make it even harder, it was in the food business and in the food business, there's always lots of turnover and it's a challenging business anyway. So, you know, it was a little bit like my experience selling radio advertising time. I I hopped into it without a lot of knowledge and uh, I had to kind of fumble my way through it, but I think it was a great way to learn. How long were you an entrepreneur in that position? Lost track of time after the years, but we had that <laughs> business for six or seven years oh, before yeah. we ultimately sold it. Yeah. 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 And then did you get into packaging soon thereafter? So I like to joke that I got into our business at Michael in the old fashioned way. I married into the family and ah. I didn't marry into the business. I married into the family. I make that <laughs> distinction because my wife and I were married about seven years or so before I joined the family business. Right. And this is a third generation. So I represent third Ooh. generation along with my cousins, actually, and my cousins in law. And the business had been founded by my wife's grandfather in 1949. It was her dad and her uncle who really made a business out of it. And it was and I'm a assuming nice, Michaelman was the, Michaelman, was the family right. name. 
Yeah. yeah. My, well, Michaelman yeah. is my wife's mother's family name. So I joke yeah. that I'm from a long line of sons-in-law. My father-in-law <laughs> preceded me in the business right. and they had a really nice business and they, they didn't, they certainly didn't need me to have a nice business. They were successful and well-regarded in the business. And I, you know, I sort of avoided it because I didn't want to just kind of what I thought would be, you know, follow the usual sort of stereotypical pattern, marry the girl, go to work for girl's father right, and did right. my own thing for a while, which I'm really, really, really glad that I did. But then the business was growing and doing really well. My father-in-law was starting to consider backing out a little bit. He was CEO at the time. I presume. He yeah. was, he and my uncle-in-law were kind of, they were kind of co -co almost co-CEOs. They yeah, were, right. they were more brothers than brother-in-law, just a fabulous tandem. I mean, they, yeah. they were two yeah. sides of a coin, the way that they right. could work together. Right. And, and I was at a, at a time where I was ready for something new and the business I think was growing and it was interesting. And, and I, I, I hopped in, right? And that was yeah. after we'd been married for about seven years. So I've been with Michaelman for now. You know, 17 plus years. Yeah, yeah well, no, no, more than that. I've been the CEO for 17 years, oh, but I was with the company it. for a good, maybe maybe 10 before I oh, became gosh, the CEO. Oh, gosh, yes, got it, got it. So what, what, where did you start in the company and what did you do? I went back to... to my roots, man. I was yeah, selling. Sales, and and, right? and I, I think it was the greatest way to learn the business because yeah. I had to go out and call on customers and really learn the business from our customer's point of view, learn why we were valued as a supplier understand customers challenges and mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. needs and and really spend a lot of time with our sales guys at the time who were the ones who were out on the street making it all happen so mm -hmm. i did sales and and then um i i became i like to sort of almost embarrassingly say i was the first cfo of the company but i was an unqualified cfo other than the fact that i had an mba i wasn't really a finance guy but right. our finances were quite simple at the time and then i had the wherewithal to realize what we needed and then hired our first outside cfo to come in and follow me as that i went on to run one of our businesses then ultimately became the ceo of the company yeah. Was it hard coming in to, you know, kind of a, as you said, married into the business, yeah. um, starting in that level? And, you know, we're, we're, some folks that maybe been around a little bit longer gave you a hard time as you were coming up? Well, it, it was it was an interesting challenge. You know, I yeah. think I have an ability to get along with people and I can mm. I can um, I can make friends pretty easily. And I, real, I realized that I occupied a really interesting place in the business. I was. Mm of the family, but not really right. because I was a son-in-law and I was of the people, but not really because I had a foot within the family. And I had an sure. ability, I think, to straddle both worlds and, and really become almost an interpreter for either side. So I know mm. that many of the people um, who were not our family might've been a little wary of me first, who's this kid coming in here. And, and I think it made me work twice as hard or three times yeah. as hard yeah. to, to, to prove myself and learn the business. I'm, as I mentioned, I've got two cousins in the business and right. of of our entire associate body. There are only three of us from the family in the business. Mm -hmm. And my two cousins in the business are both brilliant guys and, and incredibly hardworking. And one's a former investment banker. One is a very brilliant scientist. And and I mean, these guys would, would be successful in the business were they not family members. And we all three share in common the notion that as family members, we think it's a responsibility to actually work harder than anybody else mm -hmm. and show up more. And I know that's not always the case in family businesses, but but we, you know, that's, that's the heritage we follow with my father-in-law and uncle. They both were very hardworking, committed guys, really wonderful guys, but committed to the business. And Rick, Andrew, and I also feel the same way. So we we feel like we we didn't just show up and start barking orders because we were of the family. We really were there shoulder to shoulder and continue to be with our associates today. Yeah. 
Obviously, you probably had a little bit of competition, perhaps from uh, the cousins as it relates to getting into that role. That's typical in family businesses, particularly their second, third, fourth generation. Or, or for you, was it kind of a natural ascendancy? Did, did you kind of have your eyes on that corner office early on and, and worked, worked hard towards getting it? I like to lead whatever I'm involved with. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I chair the United Way of Greater Cincinnati, which is maybe the fifth or sixth largest United Way in the in the country. Uh, I, I, I'd like to be involved if I feel like I have a path to leadership. I, I recently rotated out of being the, the co-chair of the Regional Business Committee, which is the CEO organization here in Cincinnati. And so I think I'm just wired to want to lead. I feel like I have an ability to do that and a desire mm. to do that. And I'm, I'm always kind of ready for that challenge. And so I, I really did want to lead the business. Mm. I thought that I, I would do a good job leading it. And I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm half a click older than my two cousins. And so okay. I was kind of the next man up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, um, and so it was, you know, I was, I was lucky to be there at the right time. I, I realized how fortunate I've been to have these leadership opportunities. I, um, you know, I know a lot of people look at people in family who take on leadership. Well, you're just lucky to have been there. And I realized that I was lucky to be there. Mm. I also think that I've been able to add a ton of value, but I realized just how, how fortunate I was to be of the family and kind of the next one in line. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I recently heard that some CEOs are uncomfortable having their answers questioned rather than their questions answered. <laughs> have you been in that situation? If so, how do you handle that with, you know, other bright people in the room? Uh, you know, I think it's a factory setting for me, Brent, that, mm. that I feel like I am better when I surround myself with smarter people than me. Mm. I, I consider myself to be pretty smart. I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And here's back to that. Yes. And again, and I have people <laughs> around me who I think are uh, in many ways, smarter, more experienced, more capable in the areas of expertise that they have. And so it's really never been a challenge for me. I mean, mm. it's not quite fair. I mean, I'm a human being and I can, I can be a little defensive at times, but I ultimately believe that most of the big decisions we make are made better by having others share their point of view. Mm. And um, there's little that I do in our business today of substance where I don't at least seek somebody else's input. Yeah. Now, I, I don't suggest that it's a democracy and we're going to vote, but I believe that by having the input of others, I can make my ideas better. Yeah. So um, I, it's, it's just generally been the way I've managed myself through these things. We're recording this in uh, mid-August, and this is probably not going to release till September, October. But just yesterday, as uh, I'm sure you know, Biden picked Kamala Harris well, two days ago, um, and yesterday they had their announcement. And one of the things that was so touching in what he said was that he and Barack had the conversation that uh, you know he wanted to make sure that he was the last person in the room that Barack consulted on major issues before he made a decision, and he asked Kamala to do the same thing that she would be there to, you know, be that last person to uh, be, he would seek out for her opinion on, on what, what to do in, in, in difficult situations. Do you have that type of relationship with, with people in your organization? I absolutely do. I mean, mm. it starts, it starts at home and um, my wife's not even listening to me recording this, but <laughs> she will hear it. Though, yeah, Steve. she will. She, she's perhaps <laughs> the smartest person I know. And, um, I, and we've been together for a long time and yeah. there's, and she very, grew up in the company too. She grew up right. in the company, but she's in her own right. She's a, a really a brilliantly trained attorney. She's, yeah. She no longer practices law. She was a, 
NYU LLM, and she practiced with the big New York firms, and then came back and, and ran a tax practice for a large firm mm-hmm. based out of Cincinnati. But she runs nonprofits now, and uh, and and she runs. I like to say she runs Schiffman Family Inc. I used to joke with my sons that I would leave the office as the CEO, and I would arrive home at middle management <laughs> until one of my smart Alex sons says, "Stop kidding yourself. You're not even middle management. You're entry level." Yeah, right. <laughs> so trash, yeah, yeah on, on, on on most things, Julie mm-hmm. is my 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 last uh, you know mm-hmm. sort of my my mm-hmm. last point of conversation. But within the business, I mean, as I mentioned, my two cousins, both really brilliant guys, and the three of us, along with our families, own the business together. And so we rely upon one another. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, the other three members of my executive team, so of our executive team, there are six of us. Three of us are family and three of us are not. Our CFO is not family. Mm-hmm. Our chief operating officer is not family. And our chief marketing officer is not family. And these guys are brilliant and they're mm-hmm. fabulous guys. And, and um, you know, we have a very sort of open and transparent relationship. So yeah. So most big decisions are made with all or some of these guys weighing in. So you've been with the company coming up on 30 years, not, not, not well, 17. Well, let's see. I dated by my youngest son who just okay. turned 28 and my wife go. was pregnant with him when I joined. So 28-ish yeah. years. How would you say your leadership styles evolved over time, Steve? Um, I like to think that that it's evolving every single day, but mm. the basic fundamentals haven't changed, right? The basic fundamentals of my leadership are a few things. First of all, I do believe in collaborative involvement. If you look at Michaelman's values, which are published on our website, collaboration is one of the values that that we hold very dear in our company. So I, I, I believe in collaboration. As I said earlier, I, I rarely believe I'm the smartest guy in the room, and I think I'm, I'm made better by having super smart people mm. around me. Um, I... I know that there's two sort of basic ways to to approach relationships with people. In some cases, when it comes to trust, you know, you've got to earn my trust. In other cases, people say, I'll trust you until uh, you show me a reason not to. I'm, I'm the latter. Yeah. I tend to be very trusting until there's a reason not to not to trust someone. And I find that I'm very, very rarely disappointed. So my, my leadership style is open and transparent and hopefully Based, I'd like to say, as one of my colleagues jokes, I'm the best at humility. I like to think that there's some, <laughs> some humility involved, a, a lot of collaboration. Yeah. And we we really believe in our company in, mm. in, in not allowing but expecting the whole person to show up. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, we have some, some wacky characters who work in our company, but I, we, we love <laughs> them for it and we're better for it. So lots of, lots of focus on diversity and having people bring their whole selves to work. And mm. we, we, you know, through the pandemic, um, we just completed our most recent associate engagement survey and the engagement's higher than it's ever been. It was high to start with. Wow. And so it makes us really proud to think that we're, continue to engage our people and we're sharing a lot of information and when the pandemic first hit us my partners and i came to the conclusion quickly that our first priority was the safety and well-being and full employment of our associates as long as we could and we were prepared to make a little bit less money if that meant that that we can keep our people engaged and employed luckily as we mentioned before as as essential business look we've been impacted but our business is still quite strong and it's 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 gratifying to, to hear from associates who are appreciative of, of us taking that approach and, mm. and the ongoing communication. So I don't know awesome. if I'm answering your question, but I, I think, yeah. um, you know, the, the basic principles have stayed the same. I think as time has gone on, our company has continued to mature. And so therefore having a, a desire for process and for data has, has certainly improved as we brought in more and more talented people. So it's that blend of a lot of involvement, engagement, transparency. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very friendly culture, but then also requiring a little bit more precision, a lot more data, a lot more information to make the decisions. What would you say is kind of unusual or unique about the Michaelman culture? 
it's a very friendly and people first culture. Mm. And that has remained the same from generation to generation. Um, I'll tell you that the only thing that changes is perhaps how it manifests for the current times that we're in. I would say mm. that my, my father-in-law and uncle-in-law really felt strongly about taking care of people. And I would say that we've modified it slightly to say we're going to create an environment where people can take care of themselves, but we're mm. going to make sure that we're helping people take care of themselves, right? So right. it's a little bit less paternalistic, but still very people-focused. Mm. Um, we're very much a purpose-driven business and and uh, and, and very values-based. And I like to, to, to say that if I called any one of our associates around the world at four in the morning and said, please talk to me about our purpose and our values, they'd get it at least 85% right coming out of a deep sleep. <laughs> Good. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we, we don't shy away from that. We use the values and our purpose to make decisions about hiring and about sometimes when we have to say goodbye to associates, we make mm-hmm. decisions around investments and, and about, you know, where we want to be in the marketplace based upon the purpose and the values. And, and and so it's easy when you're very small and everybody can look to the right and see what the owners are doing. It's harder when you're a global business like ours where right. we don't have that many people, but we're very broadly dispersed around the world. And so right. learning how to make sure that those values and our purpose were ever present, even in the middle of Mumbai, when the owners right. are sitting in Cincinnati, Ohio, has been how the culture's evolved. But it makes me happy as I travel the globe, or at least how I used to travel the globe before we got shut down from traveling. Right. And when I would show up in places like India or uh, or China or Singapore, and our associates want to talk to us about our values or about our purpose, mm. and they share with us what they're doing uh, to continue to promote that stuff and live by that stuff, it's very gratifying. Yeah. So. How many uh, employees today and how many different offices or country locations? Today, there's roughly 450 associates, mm-hmm. you know, right. number number changes here and there. I and mean, we had more at one point. We, we sold up a couple small pieces of our business and we've made some other changes. Um, you know, Germany, we, we no longer have a factory in Germany. That, mm-hmm. That's no longer part of our business, for example. So r- roughly 450. Yeah. And we're in the United States. We are in Belgium. We're in Luxembourg. We are in Singapore. We're in mm. Shanghai. We're in Mumbai. We've got a couple of people in Tokyo. And then we've got other associates spread around the world that might work out of, work out of a home office. And those are both combination manufacturing as well as sales operations? Right. Manufacturing, mm-hmm. sales, and technology. We and are technology. a technology company. Yeah. So yeah. we have laboratories in Cincinnati and Luxembourg and Mumbai and Shanghai and in Singapore. Yeah. Awesome. What, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire, Steve? I'll go back to what I said before about purpose and about mm. values. And, you know, they're sometimes hard to measure, but, right. you know, a lot of emphasis I know is put on people's academic credentials. And, you know, I have four kids we put through college. And it was all a big deal, right? It's very important. However, I can tell you that if I look around the world, a lot of our associates who are doing fabulous jobs for Michael, and I can't tell you where, where they went to college. Yeah, right. And so what, what we've yeah. certainly learned over time is, is, is how people show up at work, right? Do they bring them their whole selves? Do they align to your purpose? Do they commit mm. to your purpose and your values? Um, you know, we're going through a really interesting exercise right now in the face of the pandemic. And, and we've got about 45 of our global associates at work on what we're calling our next normal project. And it's broken mm. into six various work streams. And, and I only raise it to say that there's lots of things that I think are going to change in the way that we work going forward. But what won't change, I don't believe, is going to be a commitment to the purpose and the culture and the values. And 
and kind of a, a set of expectations, right? People want more flexibility in work, so do I, but right. there still are expectations about how one performs in their job, right? So um, learning how to kind of get that right as we move into this next phase of, of, of where we're going yeah. in light of this pandemic. Yeah, and, and on that point, you know, there's obviously a lot of speculation about what work is going to look like, what the world's going to look like, and that kind of that post-COVID, or, or rather interim COVID. Who knows yeah. if we're going to be even out of it any time. You know, what specific changes do you think you see at Michaelman moving forward? Well, you know, it's a couple things. I think, first of all, anybody who tells you they know exactly what's going to happen is, is probably a fool, right? So nobody can predict the future, although lots of people on television like to tell you exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I think a few things for sure that are coming out of this um, for, for us will be, first of all, more flexibility. I don't know mm -hmm. what that's going to look like, but I think the idea that no one will work in an office is probably a little bit too much. And the idea that we'll always work in an office again, I think that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. There are certain parts of our organization that have to show up, right? If you're working a reactor on a manufacturing right. floor, you've got to show up. Our scientists need a bench, yeah, right? Right, right? But but I think other people are finding, look, I, I, I'll speak personally. I I know I do better deep work when I'm not in the office because we have a very open office environment and because of the friendly nature of our organization, no closed doors, all that kind of right, stuff, people right. are in and out of our offices all the time, which is great for collaboration and for relationships. But if you're trying to do deep work, it makes it difficult. Yeah. I know I do better deep work if I'm sitting at my home or at a cafe or something like that somewhere. Yeah. But if I want to be with people, I need to be in the office. And so I think yeah. that we're going to find more of those hybrid kinds of working relationships yeah. going forward. Right. I, I have I have colleagues who are sort of our generation who used to laugh. I, they would think that when someone said they were working from home, it meant they were going to be in their jammies watching Ellen in front of the TV. <laughs> but you know what? Now they're at home working and they realize they're working harder and they're more productive yeah. than they've ever been. And so true. they've learned as well that, that there are different ways to do work. So I think how we do work is different. I think what's also been interesting is that we've been onboarding some associates during this. We continue to mm. hire. Yeah. And six months ago, the idea of onboarding somebody virtually would have been anathema. You can't yeah, do exactly. that. Exactly. Why would you but do that? But you know it? what? Yeah. We yeah. have some people who have been onboarded brilliantly during this because yeah. people are figuring out that we can't stop. We have to keep going. Right. Right. So how do you lead and develop people? You know, the whole notion of management is going to change potentially because if you, if you were a manager before and you thought your job was to make sure your people were at their desk, well, forget about it. You can't do that today, right? right so maybe we don't right. need you to do that any longer. How do you lead people? How do you develop talent? Those are all going to be different, I think, going yeah, forward. Yeah. Now, what percentage of your uh, workforce was remote pre-COVID and what do you think it'll be, you know, post-interim ongoing COVID? <laughs> our customer-facing organization has been primarily remote for the last right. number of years because right. our salespeople tend to live in the territories that sure. they, they cover. So that's not changing. Yeah. And then we've had these, I wouldn't call it remote, but these hybrid virtual relationships. You, right. you mentioned that we've got this global organization and we have many work teams that are global in nature. So we have associates who have been working virtually with their colleagues really for a long time. And so since you've got people in Asia, Europe, and the United States, sometimes you may not be remote by nature, but you're sitting at your home at night because you're talking to somebody from Singapore, sure, right. right? So it's been kind of a hybrid remote organization. So I can't tell you what percentage. Um, roughly a third of our people are, are manufacturing, and we probably right. have another, you know, third who are technical. And so, so they're not remote by nature, but, you know, roughly a third of our organization has the capacity to be remote. Mm. And so we'll see how that works going yeah. forward. Yeah, awesome. But back to what I was saying before, I think it's going to be mostly a hybrid, right? I think people right. are going to continue to want to be in the office because 
as I said, I, I'm you enjoying working from Colorado, but I miss yeah. the noise. I, yeah, I miss right. having lunch with people. I miss rushing to a meeting. I mean, there's certainly right. something about getting dressed for battle and going into work and being part of that thing <laughs> that you don't get when you're working from home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, you've been very generous with our time and, and uh, your time, and we're just zipping away here. But we do have one last question we ask all our guests, and that's what career and life advice would you give someone who, you know, has their eye on their corner office? Maybe it's a family business. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a corporate structure or perhaps even it's an entrepreneurial venture, which you've done in the past as well. You know, what would you say to your uh, your yourself 20 years ago <laughs> or to someone who's looking at this? What I would say to myself 20 years ago or 30 years ago, perhaps is to lighten up a little bit and mm. um, to keep saying yes to opportunities. Mm. You know, the, most most of the successful CEOs that I know have really interesting and varied backgrounds. Yeah. I, like many people, have worked with an executive coach for a while, and I've got a mm. fabulous coach. And one of the things I remember saying to him during one of our sessions was, I'm not a typical CEO. And he stopped me and said, what the hell does that mean? I mean what's a typical <laughs> CEO? And, 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 and I think the point he was trying to make is that the best leaders are generally people who have a lot of lived experience, you know, right. and they have uh, they have a worldview they've established, and they they're able to to relate to and deal with people. And, and so, what I would say to the people who are who are aspiring for leadership is continue to gather experiences, both mm. professionally and non professionally. Travel, leave the country, meet new people try new things community work is incredibly important to my organization mm. it's incredibly important to me and i would say that the best leadership i've ever gotten is by working through the community because when you raise your hand to do community work at least in my experience your job title doesn't matter any longer right. if you raise yeah. your hand you're in and you find yourself doing things you don't do during the normal work day and meeting right. people and gaining confidence and i would say volunteer you know well, Steve Schiffman, President and CEO of uh, Michaelman, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you, Brant. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.